Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renneke. Today, we're going to be talking about body composition, all things what it looks like to achieve and maintain a healthy body composition throughout your life. I know this can be a little bit of a touchy subject, but I'm hoping that we can gracefully and respectfully talk about this topic with understanding that we're simply trying to dig through the data and seems, you know, to figure out what seems to be the trend in this data. That's all we're looking for. And before I want to dive in, I do want to preemptively say that I know that weight loss can be an incredibly challenging thing. Anybody who's ever had a weight loss goal knows that it can be incredibly challenging. And as more data comes out, we're now realizing that it's a very complex and ever-changing topic that I think we're only hitting the tip of the iceberg, really. The old adage of calories in versus calories out is still talked about. And yes, from a chemical and biological perspective, it's still true that burning off more calories than you take in will result in weight loss. But we're now starting to understand and appreciate why this piece of advice might not be so helpful. So I just wanted to get that out there and know that weight loss and weight maintenance is very difficult. But even with you know the knowledge that it is very difficult, I still think it's helpful to talk about this topic. I did want to give a disclaimer though before we start. If you happen to struggle with your weight or find this topic difficult, irritating, or frustrating, I just want to let you know that I get it and that I see you. In our culture, it's incredibly challenging to deal with this. Weight, stigma, and society in the medical profession is incredibly real. And I know you deal with this on many difficult things, you know, because of weight issues. You know, this is not an attack on you or me or anybody or who you are as a person. And I I want you to know that having obesity is not a defining trait. I view obesity and body composition, you know, discussions like this. I think it's similar to discussions we have about high blood pressure or cholesterol. It is a medical condition and not a moral failure. And you are not a bad person or a weak-willed person if you struggle with this. However, it is something that I cannot shy away from, and I do think it's still important to talk about that. So now that we have a disclaimer out of the way and all the fun stuff done, let's get this started. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who hasn't heard about BMI, but odds are they probably don't really understand what it is. So let's answer the question, what is BMI? If you look online, you know, anywhere you'll see tons of conversations about BMI when it comes to discussions on weight and what it's typically used for to help categorize individuals into categories like underweight, normal weight, overweight, and obese. It's a simple mathematical formula with a person's weight in kilograms divided by the square of their height in meters. And then, you know, that number is helped used to stratify people into different categories. You know, what it does not do, it does not diagnose body fatness of an individual or their overall health, but simply gives us a number for comparison. That's it. It's just a number that we kind of use to kind of compare things and, and categorize people. You know, for the different categories, underweight would be defined as a BMI below 18.5. A healthy weight, quote unquote healthy weight, would be between 18.5 and 24.9. Overweight then would be between 25 and 29.9. And obese would be anything above 30. I do want to make a note though that although BMI calculation is the same for children and adolescents, their interpretations require the age and sex as well, um, where adults do not. For kids, growth and development play a huge role in where we expect them to be, and boys and girls develop differently. So we group them into percentiles to kind of project where they should be. That's obviously not the main emphasis of this podcast, talking about BMI and adolescence, but I just wanted to mention it so that you don't use the same definitions for your child and all of a sudden it leads to you know some issues down the line. So I just want to get that out there, that disclaimer. And so I know you, you might be wondering, okay, well, you just said it's a calculation, then why the heck are we using this thing if it isn't specific and it's just a general number? You know, why do we use it if it's just an estimate? And that's a great question. The answer is because it's incredibly easy to decipher the number for an enormous amount of people. You know, if you think about it, it's super easy to get a person's height, right? You check it in, just measure their height. You can get their weight either from a scale or just asking them, um, or you can look in their previous medical records and get this. And so, or they can just self-report it. So it's super easy to get this data. That's like the most important thing and why it's so, you know, widely used. We get this number and we have a huge amount of data that we can look at. And so, you know, 
it might not be the ideal test. It's definitely a great way to get a large amount of information that we can look at and kind of, you know, start basing hypotheses and getting ideas off of this. And so is it perfect? Obviously not, you know, it's very flawed and lots of things. We'll kind of talk about that. Um, but I mean, to for just for a volume perspective, you can get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of data points. And that's really powerful. So Moving around, the next question you might have, we kind of just alluded to it as well. I heard that BMI is flawed and biased, so we shouldn't use it at all. And to that question, I'll say, yes, the BMI metric is flawed. We know that, and it may have originated from a place of bias previously, kind of talking about looking at pretty much exclusively white individuals. But it doesn't mean that we should disregard, you know, everything about BMI entirely. I think that it would be a little short-sighted. So it clearly isn't perfect, like I've mentioned many times already in this podcast, but I really wanna get across that BMI is used to look at information at a population level. And you know, it is not the end-all be-all for individual people. So like I said, we take a step back, this is a population level you know, piece of information that we're gonna look at. In reality, we never use BMI as the entire picture for someone's health, but it has been proven time and time again to be a pretty good measure of the general population, and we can use it to help observe trends. Additionally, the scientific community has recognized that the same BMI in a person of one ethnicity may not be the same in a person of a different ethnicity. So we do need to have some nuance in the idea um, that you know a BMI for one person is not exactly the same BMI for another person. Additionally, sometimes it can actually you know be the other way around where BMI can underpredict someone's risk. For example, if you have an elderly patient who is sedentary and has sarcopenia or an abnormally low amount of lean body mass, then their BMI may actually underestimate their adiposity and in doing so may inaccurately decrease their risk status. So with that being said, I would use BMI as an initial screening tool, then look at each individual person and decide whether or not a BMI is a good metric for them. So like stepping back once again, BMI, because when you step on the weight, you know, on the scale and you measure your height, we can get that metric right away, boom, boom. And then we look at that from a global perspective and it does tend to trend out pretty darn well from a population standpoint, but you're not a population, you're a single person. So we use that number and then kind of see, hey, does this make sense for that individual person? Does it make sense? And we kind of go from there. Now, I know like the next question you're thinking is, Jordan, I listened to your podcast, episode three talked about important exercise, and I agree with you, and now I'm super ripped. Does BMI still count for me? Well, first of all, congrats on being jacked. That's awesome. And second, this is exactly the point I'm making when I say that we use BMI as an initial screening tool, but each person should be looked at individually. You know, like if you were a super muscular person, you'll most likely fall into the overweight category, but your body composition may be drastically different than someone else in the same BMI category as you. And so your risk for future disease would also be very different from that person. Generally speaking though, people who have a high amount of lean body mass would typically be at a lower risk for complications compared to others in their same BMI category. So what we're saying is like, if you have a ton of muscle, you know, it's going to artificially put you in an overweight category and your body composition won't be the same as others in that category. And so it kind of places you in a different risk stratification. However, I don't, you know, want you to use this as an excuse to say like, oh, BMI doesn't matter. You know, I lift a lot of weight, so my BMI, you know, it doesn't matter if it's up there because, you know, that could also get you into trouble if you have a high amount of body fat with your muscle as well. So obviously you can be super strong, super big, and the rule isn't, oh, because I lift weight, BMI doesn't matter. What we're saying is that might skew things a little bit. So once again, it's a very personalized and nuanced, and that is why we can use multiple different metrics to help, you know, make that picture become a little more clear over time. And speaking of metrics, you might be wondering what are some other metrics we can use for body composition. And I'm glad you asked that question. A few of those things that we can use are things like body calipers to kind of measure body fat. So that's where people take physical calipers and what pinch your pack, pinch your, you know, pinch your stomach, pinch your legs to kind of get a estimate of your body fat. 
We can use things like a bod pod, which measures body fat. You can use, you know, um, water displacement, bioelectric impedance, a dual, you know, energy X-ray absorptometry, which or DEXA scan, which is kind of a fancy word. Like so that's a long word. DEXA scan is what it is. It's using X-ray technology. You can always use MRI technology, or you can use something as simple as waist circumference. So there's so many different ways to stratify and look at body composition. You know that it's really important to think about. You know, like I said, BMI is our overarching theme of hey. What does it generally look like? And then we use these more specific tools to kind of narrow in and focus down what does the body composition look like? Obviously, there's a lot to unpack with all these things we just talked about. There's a, a billion different ones. And I think it probably might be worth a podcast in the future to talk just about these specific things. But it just goes to show you that there are lots of ways that we can investigate body composition, you know, outside of just BMI. I would say that the most common means are typically the calipers, you know, they're just super easy, although not very accurate. Um, I also see the bod pod quite a bit, which is decent. And then DEXA scans as well. From a medical perspective, I see that quite a bit. Um, like I said, the calipers are typically super operator, you know, dependent, meaning that it can vary from person to person and they're not really re reliable. And so if you get a consistent reading, uh, I think that is something you can use, but I said other tools like the bod pod or DEXA are probably gonna be your best bet. That being said, you make do with what you get. And if you keep it consistent over time, it's always helpful so that you always have, you know, a previously similar measurement to compare to. So that's kind of like my general thing. If you're getting a DEXA one time and then you're getting a bod pod and then you're getting calipers, you know, it might be challenging to compare those things where if whatever you're doing, just consistently do that. Um, and that's kind of going to be more to me probably, um, than a lot than just jumping around. But like I said, the gold standards looking more like DEXA or bod pod, you know, those you kind of can do in a one-off thing where if you do a, you know, calipers, calipers, and then a DEXA, well, I'm going to believe the DEXA is going to be probably more accurate than that. But if you got calipers, you use what you got. It's no big deal. But one test that I wanted to specifically talk about is the use of waist circumference because it is simple, affordable, and might give us some additional information that BMI can't. So to measure your waist circumference, you simply wrap a tape measure around your abdomen while, you know, just above your hip bones when you're standing and then after exhaling. So, you know, around the abdomen, just above the hip bones, and then just after you're exhaling. That's it. Super easy. I also like this test because it also helps, you know, start to paint a more clear picture of where someone's adipose tissue stores are located. We have seen in data that the distribution of adipose typically may actually help us determine what people are at a higher risk for developing obesity related conditions. Specifically, these cutoffs we think about are a waist circumference greater than 40 inches um, in men and then in non-pregnant females, a waist circumference greater than 35 inches will typically show a little increase in risk for um, obesity related illnesses. And so we now have an additional tool in our toolbox that we can use and we kind of see the picture a bit more clearly. For example, let's talk about how this might be used. If we see an incredibly fit athlete who happens to fall into the overweight category, you know, based on the BMI, but has a waist circumference of 34, well, that paints a really different picture than someone who's a non-active patient who's also overweight, but their waist circumference is 42. That is a completely different scenario. And the second patient would be at a high risk for developing obesity-related diseases. So once again, overarching theme of that BMI, and then we kind of investigate further to say, okay, does this fit the picture of the BMI that they're telling me, or is the patient in front of me or the person in front of me, you know, is it different? And I have to kind of explain for that. And so now we've covered BMI, body composition, waist circumference, and other tools we can use to look at it. But now it's time to talk a little bit more about adipose tissue or the fat tissue actually inside your body. I want to dive a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole about whether or not it matters where adipose tissue is stored in the body. We've already talked about how we can, you know, tend to see an association between truncal or abdominal obesity um, and obesity-related diseases, but are there any other locations that are, you know, high risk? And it turns out there actually are. 
What's really interesting is that one area that most people wouldn't think about is adipose tissue around their organs. So, you know, we don't necessarily see it. You don't see that on a person. You can't tell just by looking at them. Nobody has x-ray vision that, oh, they have a lot of, you know, fat around their body organs. But this is a term called visceral adiposity. And there actually seems to be a strong correlation between an increased amount of visceral adipose tissue and increasing risk of cardiometabolic disease. Additionally, some other places that you may see an increase in adipose tissue include the liver and muscles, um, which also can kind of tend to have a little higher risk. But also interesting enough, though, the if you have increased adipose tissue in the lower body, you know, it does not seem to have the same effects as, you know, as the upper body. Um, patients who have the adipose tissue in their lower body tend to be much more metabolically healthy than the upper body patients. So it's actually very interesting. And so adipose tissue storage is not created equally. That is for sure. You know, if it's up in the upper body, it tends to be a little more high risk than in the lower body. And so now maybe you've been listening this whole time and you're now thinking, why does it matter if I have excess adipose tissue? You know, does it actually do anything? You know, the question of that is a resounding yes. You know, we used to think that adipose tissue was metabolically inert, meaning it didn't do anything, just sat there to jack. But we now have learned that this is really far from the truth. Other than simply growing in size, adipose tissue is metabolically active and can play roles in inflammation, blood lipids, insulin sensitivity, and a bunch of different other things. So on the other end of the spectrum, we have, you know, lean body mass, right? We talked about adipose tissue, lean body mass. Lean body mass pretty much does all the opposite things of adipose tissue. And someone, you know, something that we should strive to have is increase our lean body tissue. You know, like we said, increased adipose tissue has those negative health effects metabolically, you know, and hormonally, which is interesting. And lean body mass or tissue pretty much does the exact opposite. And so that's why for us, like having more lean body mass and less adipose tissue probably gonna um, lead to a, a, a state where we have less risks um, going forward. And so on a more controversial topic, there's a concept of metabolically healthy obesity that people talk about. What this means is that those with obesity can still be metabolically healthy when looking at certain parameters. You know, is this actually true? That's a very valid question. Well, as I've mentioned before, not all adipose tissue is created equally and, you know, upper and lower body distribution, you know, can have a much different effects all over the body. And a trend we tend to see once again, is that those who have a lower body distribution of adipose tissue tend to have a higher chance of being more metabolically healthy when compared with those who have you know, uh, more trunkal obesity. And there's some data that suggests that about 10 to 30% of patients with obesity, you know, may still be metabolically healthy, which they define as not having, you know, any sort of metabolic disturbance like abnormal lipids, insulin resistance, impaired glucose metabolism, or to type 2 diabetes. However, when looking at longer term outcomes, it did look like about a third of these patients did end up developing some sort of cardiometabolic disease. So overall, it looks like increased adiposity does increase the risk of later developing cardiometabolic disease. So because this concept can be tricky and is supercharged online, I wanna take a step back and share my approach with you. It appears that having excess adipose tissue does not increase the risk for some people for getting cardiometabolic disease. You know, if you're not already exhibiting any of these disease forms. So, you know, if having you have uh, increased adiposity um, and you have no other signs of underlying disease. It doesn't appear like just having that adipose tissue increases your risk, you know, but that being said from there, if you happen to be like one of these 10 to 30% of people who are metabolically healthy, it does appear though that this may be a transient state and that these currently healthy or metabolically healthy patients with obesity will have a higher chance of developing problems later down the line. Um, and so the question is, can you be healthy at any size? It does appear you can, when we look at snapshots in time. So when we're looking at a snapshot in time at one, you know, one 
sequence of it, one snapshot, it looks like you can be metabolically healthy when having increased adipose tissue. But my biggest concern is that over time, that excess adiposity will create this snowball effect, right? It kind of goes and increases your chances for issues down the line. So with that long-term lens kind of viewpoint that I'm looking at, I don't think I can honestly look at the data at this time and recommend that you don't worry about your body composition. As it appears, it does increase the risk for numerous diseases. Now, that's not to say that if someone falls in the overweight or obese category, that we should just solely focus on that. In fact, you know, nothing should be further from the truth. Instead, we should focus on all the other aspects of health that we've already talked about and then continue to work on body composition. Just because one area isn't ideal doesn't mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like I said, supercharged, um, but you know, just looking at the data overall, it seems that having increased adipose tissue does set you up for some potential risks down the line. And so kind of taking a 30,000 foot view, stepping back here, we've kind of talked about body composition, BMI, all that. What I want you to take away from this is that BMI can be a helpful tool to kind of look at population health, you know, for the average person, maybe not the person watching this or listening to this, um, but who's largely inactive, the BMI does seem to correlate pretty well with their overall body composition. But that being said, for the everyday athlete, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take a look at the BMI and just kind of see ballpark. And then from there, you dig, dig deeper, right? If it doesn't fit or it's discordant, you look at that person and say, hey, this doesn't fit. And then we can talk about those tools that we talked about, whether it's DEXA or BODPOD or even simple waist circumference. So we're kind of starting from the BMI, then working to some sort of measurement of, you know, body composition. And that's given us more information we can kind of dive deeper. And, you know, the data does seem to show that the increase of, you know, truncal adiposity. So upper, upper body adipose tissue versus lower kind of increases your risk. And so all these things are, yeah, I take into consideration when, when looking at a patient and kind of talking about it. So, um, you know, body composition does appear to be important. The more lean mass we have, the better off we're going to be, we're going to have, it's going to help you metabolically and all that stuff. So overall from this episode, I want you to take that. I do think it matters. Having more lean tissue will be better than having less lean tissue pretty much. Um, and staying within a, you know, metabolically healthy, um, body composition will be helpful and we can use multiple tools to kind of determine what that looks like looking at our blood lipids our cholesterol our you know blood pressure all these things in a, in a picture they kind of all work together to kind of see if we're metabolically healthy or not so there you have it a very general overview about body composition and how it can affect your health um, if you enjoy this you may enjoy you know the previous podcast episodes where we've talked about other things and they've been released and if you found this helpful it'd mean the world to us if you shared it with a friend liked it or subscribed to the channel or podcast regardless thanks so much for tuning in I really appreciate it. We'll see you next time on the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. Take care. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that the science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.